for we love Him in this place. And we see Jesus. We see Jesus as the gift. The indescribable gift. Amen? Amen. I love you all so much. Happy Father's Day. I'm glad that you're here on this good day in God's house. You can be turning to Genesis 7 is where you can be turning to. And God's Word is as excited as we are over worship and this new great song and everything else. We ought to be equally as excited about opening the Word of God and see what He has for us today. I'm also excited for this Wednesday. Coming up here in just a couple short days here. Wednesday, 6 o'clock, here in this building, we're going to worship. We've got testimonies. We've, got, we've primed the pump with a couple, but we have also have... An open mic time for people to testify of God's goodness. We're going to take the Lord's Supper together. There's going to be a baptism. Uh, so this Wednesday, if you didn't know, is a good opportunity for you to be baptized. If you have not been baptized since you have come to Christ and committed your life to Him, since you have become a Christian, if you've not been baptized, this coming Wednesday is a great opportunity to do so. Talk to me or one of the other pastors. Get in touch with us. We can make sure all the details are worked out before Wednesday. If for whatever reason Wednesday doesn't work, you also have as an opportunity July the 9th. Uh, July the 9th is going to be a special day. There's a family in our church that's going to be baptized on their family property not far from here, actually less than 10 minutes away. And we're going to be holding an outdoor baptismal service by the side of a pond. And you're invited. And it's going to be a great time. That's another opportunity if you don't mind being baptized in an outdoor service like that. July the 9th, mark that down, that's another opportunity. Talk to us. If you're unsure of baptism or what it means or you have questions about it, come talk to us. We're not going to slam you over the head with the Bible, at least not too hard. And, uh, and we can talk about baptism, why we do it, the reason for it, and its great importance in our walk with Christ. But this Wednesday, make plans to be here, 6 p.m. It's going to be a good time. Genesis 7, are you there? If you are, then let's pray together. Father, we have your word open before us. We've gathered as you've commanded. We've worshiped as you've given us a design to do. And your word is open before us, as is also the pattern. Starting at Pentecost all the way forward until now, Lord, we've carried forth these traditions as your word has commanded us to do, to stay faithful in this relationship with you, as you have given us pattern, you've given us instruction in your word. So, Father, we, we're not saying these things as a result of saying that we ask for you to, we're trying to bend your hand and blessing as we now preach your word, God. We just want to say, Lord, that we have found goodness in your plan, that we have found peace in your presence, and even joy evermore in your presence. So, Father, we understand that this is a working of you, and we ask you to bless us now. We ask you to do the work of shining a light into all truth in our hearts, a work that only your Holy Spirit can do, we ask you to begin doing even now. We pray in Jesus' name, and all the church says. There is an annual celebration in Brazil called the Rio Carnival, or Carnival as they say it. And this carnival is a multi-day celebration slash parade that goes on. And it's been going on for a while now. And it is common at these carnivals that last several days 
for essentially debauchery to be celebrated. It was in fact in 2019 that part of the celebration, uh, it always happens that sexual freedom is celebrated as you might imagine in those kinds of environments, but they, they even... They even put their debauchery on such display that one of the floats, as it were, was this satanic type of float. And going before the float were people dressed up, representing angels and demons, but two in particular that were of interest. One dressed up as Jesus and the other as the devil. And in this display, they depict the devil abusing and mocking Christ. If that gives you an indication of what goes on at the Rio Carnival in Brazil. It was just this year on February 19th during this carnival, right in the middle of the celebration, that thunderclouds began to roll in. And not just any rain clouds, rain clouds that would produce 24 inches, more than 24 inches of rain in less than 24 hours. Some hours within that 24 hour span would see more than three inches of rain in less than 60 minutes. In recorded history, they had never, at least with respect to denying that of the flood, they had never seen any kind of flood. There had never been any kind of flood in their, in their history. Uh, I'm going to pause for just one second. Tim, where are you at? I hear, I hear our, our wonderful AC system that sounds like a leaf blower out back. JR and Tim, could you guys cover that? Can you hear that out back? Okay, if you guys could cover that, that would be great. Thank you, guys. So you have an idea of what this carnival is like, and last just this year when that flood took place, you might imagine causing devastating flooding in that particular area in Brazil. More than 60 people lost their life, and as I understand the story, uh, both of the people in 2019 that played the devil and Christ both died in that flood. Now some people might say this is a coincidence, I don't think that's the case, I think that it was God's hand of judgment pouring out over such lawlessness, over such a celebration of sin. But these kinds of celebrations are no longer happening just in other countries. They happen also, yes, even in America. It was just recently that on the south lawn of the White House, our president invited many to come join a pride celebration, with June being Pride Month, to celebrate sin, to celebrate rebellion against God. And, and there's certainly no place for the large C church in America to point some kind of judgmental finger and to say that, that it's only our president leading us in such debauchery at the leadership level of our country, but perhaps it's also to fault the log in our own eye being that of the church in the sin of fornication, another kind of sexual perversion going unchecked and unchallenged by predominantly the church in America. Proverbs 14, 34 says, Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. If you know your Bible well at all, you may have noticed before that in the book of Revelation of the things to come, that it is strangely silent with regards to the nation of America. And the reason is, is because it's not mentioned in it. And you and I are the generation where we get to see before our very eyes the reasons for which we are becoming so spiritually depraved, 
so spiritually non-important that it's, we're not even a player in the end times, not even to have the name of America mentioned. You and I are seeing that before our very eyes when you have at the leadership level, the presidential level of America, championing things that are an abomination against God and his good design. So while we know, as we'll see moving forward in the book of Genesis, that God has promised with the rainbow to never again flood the earth in its entirety, we know that we're also marching towards another ultimate judgment that is spoken of in 2 Peter 3, talking about the end of the tribulation period in which everything as you and I know it is going to burn with a fervent heat, as the Bible says, when God is going to recreate heaven and earth and everything as you and I know it now is going to be utterly consumed and behold, everything will be new is exactly what God is going to do. But until these times occur, this almost entirety of judgment as we know it in the great flood and the complete judgment as we know it in the end of the great tribulation, there are other judgments that happen in between. That God is certainly lacking no ability to judge people or nations. Let me give you just an example of a few that we see in the Bible. We see God making water undrinkable as a means of judgment. We see him causing frogs and lice and flies and locusts to overwhelm powerful nations. We see livestock coming to diseases that are so incredibly widespread. Boils and sicknesses in people. Damaging hail that damages buildings and crops. Unexplained darkness for extended periods of time. Sinkholes that swallow entire groups of people and one that is very common in the scripture and one that probably most of us if you're paying attention could very likely see happening even to our nation is God using another nation and yes even sometimes a very ungodly nation to be the means through which he disciplines another these are all ways in which God judges people and nations that celebrate sin and make a mockery of what he has said is good and right. So the question on the table for us this morning would be this. Knowing in wisdom that our nation, America, is long past due judgment. And by that I mean it is a miracle. It is a miracle that God has been as long-suffering and patient towards our nation as he has been. We're, we're long past due severe judgment for the sin that we celebrate and the innocent blood that we shed. It is a merciful, compassionate thing that it has been this long that God has relented from doing harm to this nation that we call home. Knowing that in wisdom, what should the response of us be? As Christians, or perhaps if you're not a Christian, I'll give you some instruction as well as to what you might do, knowing that we're marching towards this in wisdom, which lends way to the title of this message being what to do when God pours out judgment. And in this sermon, I'm prayerfully going to show you three pieces of instruction that we see from the life of Noah and God's interaction with Noah that gives us our marching orders, our cues of what we should do as a people in a nation marching towards what I believe is indeed judgment indeed. Look to verse 1 of chapter 7 in Genesis. It says, Then the Lord said to Noah, Come into the ark, you and all your household, because I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. And just to clarify real quickly for you, I know there's sometimes confusion of how people are righteous in the Old Testament. You say, well, Jesus hadn't come yet. The sacrificial lamb, the one who had the perfect and has the perfect righteousness that we need for heaven, 
he hadn't come yet. So how were people in the Old Testament righteous? And I would say in some very real sense, the exact same way in the New Testament. It wasn't as if Noah was just a goody two shoes that didn't get his hands dirty. There was a, a very keen sense and awareness in Noah's heart that he needed God's forgiveness that he needed the righteousness of God to overlook his iniquity and that he had a love and a passion for God that sought to seek, to sought to please God. This is why you have even Job, the oldest book in the Bible, very, very much in the Old Testament saying things like, I know my Redeemer lives. The way people were saved in the Old Testament is the same way in the New Testament, to know that God is their Redeemer. Verse 2, look at it. God says, you shall take with you seven of each, every clean animal, a male and his female, two each of animals that are unclean, a male and his female, also seven of each of the birds of the air, male and female, to keep the species alive on the face of all the earth. For after seven more days, I will cause it to rain on the earth 40 days and 40 nights, and I will destroy from the face of the earth all living things that I have made. Verse 5. And Noah did according to all that the Lord commanded him. Thing one we see this morning, the way in which we are to be when we know that God is going to pour out judgment upon a nation and it is simply obedience. And I've got a clicker here on this thing that guys I don't think is working probably because I didn't turn it on. You're watching a man function at the height of his intellectual abilities right now. I don't know why you're all laughing. Here we go. And I'm looking up there because maybe you didn't know that, but I can actually see what you see behind all of you so that I can actually see it. It helps the worshipers, everything else. Obedience to the divine plan. What do we see it was that Noah did? What did God tell Noah to do? We know that God told Noah to build a boat. Commonly in the scriptures called an ark. When you hear me say ark, you'll know boat, very, very large boat that God instructed Noah to build. Noah built it. We also see that God told Noah and his family to come into the ark. And I'll say a little bit more in a moment why I think that's just beautiful and wonderful that God says, come into the ark and not get on the ark. We'll talk more about that in a moment, but we know that God said, come into the ark. And indeed, Noah and his family were obedient. He said to bring his family and the animals with him. That's exactly what Noah did. Noah's response was obedience. God gave him instruction to a divine plan. And Noah said yes and amen. He obeyed. And Noah did according to all that the Lord had commanded him to do. So how does that translate to you and I? I would say we ought to also have obedience to the God's divine plan. No, it is not the case that God is going to flood the earth with water in its entirety again. We know that that's not going to happen. The rainbow was the promise. The bow that God set in the sky is a sign of that promise. But knowing that other forms of judgment very likely are coming to this nation, we ought to understand that it's not an ark that he's calling us to get into, but to be in Christ. Obedience to this divine plan. And I love that God says, come into the ark. You and all your household. He doesn't say, get on the ark or go on the ark. It's almost as if God is saying, come unto me, come unto the ark where I am, where protection is. And in fact, we know that this word come in the Bible is used the exact same kind of way, not just here in the Old Testament, but also in Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, when Jesus explicitly says, come unto me, all you who are labor and heavy laden, 
So in the same way that God says to Noah, come in the ark, come in the ark where I am, where the presence of God is, where my protection that I provide for you is, in the exact same kind of way Jesus says, come unto me. I'm so glad that God didn't say, just get on the boat and I'll be out here. No, he says, come into where I am. This word also pops up in Revelation 22, verse 17, where, you know, it says, and it says, and the spirit and the bride say, come and let him who hears says, come. And let him who thirsts come, whoever desires, let him take of the waters of life freely. There's this invite to come partake of God's divine plan. And we understand that this divine plan for Noah was to get on the ark that God had given him the, given him the instructions to build. For you and I, it's to get inside of Christ. It's to be washed by his blood. It's to be covered with his forgiveness. It's to receive this free gift it was by God's grace that he gave Noah the instruction to build the ark, the preservation that God would give him. It's by God's grace that he gives us Christ, that our sins might be washed, that through the judgment waters of the flood with respect to sin, that you and I too might be saved in a very same kind of way that Noah and his family was. We ought to be obedient to this divine plan. This divine plan is the gospel, that although you and I have sinned, you must be in Christ. I know there's a lot of believers in this church, but I believe that not everyone here is a believer. You need to be in Christ. Put yourself in the parallel of the story of Noah and the heathens on the world and the ark and the flood. Are you going to get on the boat? Or are you just going to think like many do that this isn't a big deal? That This is not probably that God is going to ever, uh, maybe God didn't actually flood the entire earth in its entirety. Maybe God isn't actually going to judge people and nations in time and all these kinds of things. And if that were to be you, or maybe it's not even you, I just want to, I want to bolster everybody's confidence in the biblical narrative this morning. If in fact God didn't judge the earth in its entirety with a flood I just want to ask the very simplistic question from a very simplistic man. Why, oh why, do you have fossilized fish like this that are more than 20,000 feet above sea level on the very tippy top of mountains? Why? I'm a very simplistic man just asking the very simplistic question. If the flood didn't happen, if, if we don't have a confidence in the reality that God does judge sin, yes, even in time, as I believe we saw in Brazil, as we definitely saw in the word of God with respect to the flood, why do you have examples like this? Why do you have examples like this? These are called crinoids. They're a, it's a fossilized crinoid. It's kind of a jellyfish type creature, an ocean dwelling creature. Sometimes they're called sea lilies or feather stars. Just you can imagine that based on the shape that they are. This was found just a few years, just a couple years ago, uh, 8,300 feet above sea level on the top of a mountain also. And these two examples that I give you are two of thousands. It's not as if the one little fish fossil and these cream, like these are the only thing. No, there are thousands upon thousands of sea dwelling creatures and creatures that don't live on the tippy top of mountains and their fossils are scattered over the top of the face of the earth. Particularly of interest on the very tops of mountains. Why is that? And some people have hypothesized before people that that are really jumping through a lot of intellectual hoops to make it such that the Bible is not true in their minds, they'll say, well, at some point in time in our Earth's history, the tectonic plates of our Earth have collided to such a severe degree that they've buckled up and pushed up the mountains. 
So like, for example, Mount Everest, a classic example that everybody might be thinking of, which also, in case, in case you didn't know, you also find all of these kinds of fossils. They say at one point in time, the very tip of Mount Everest was perhaps underwater. And those tectonic plates jammed into one another and jutted up through the earth and up through the sea. And now it's a mountaintop, and that's how you get ocean-dwelling creatures on the tops of mountains. Now... I'm an intellectual man, a simple one at that, but I'm an intellectual man. Let's take that thought forward just a little bit, okay? Let's say maybe that happened. What would you expect to find if that happened? Just imagine that you're standing on a place of ground and the tectonic plates underneath you jam up together and you're standing on where a mountain is being formed. Probably not a peaceful environment. Probably really dangerous as all the rocks and earth and everything comes up and creates a mountain. Uh, probably not a peaceful environment. It, it would be very dangerous. If you were standing there, you're probably going to die. Your body's going to be mangled and twisted. That is what you would expect. If it so happened that that's how mountains were created and you get sea-dwelling creatures on the tops of mountains, what you would expect would be fossilized animals that are twisted and their bodies torn, bones broken. But what did we just see in the two pictures that are representative of the thousands others that you can find all over the internet? You find a picture of a fish perfectly laying there as if it just lay, was laid down by water. You have very soft-bodied animals like these crinoids with the same thing. Let me show you another picture here. Somebody tell me what this is. Yeah, it's a bee hornet thing. Listen, you, you've got these sitting in the corner of your garage, okay? And look at the way this also being found on a mountaintop, by the way. Look at how that thing is laying. And again, representative of not just this picture and the two previous, but thousands of examples. You find these animals, these soft-bodied animals like this little hornet thing, laying as if they had just died and then were laid down by perhaps water, let's say. And this is exactly what you find. It just so happens that the old Buddy Davis song that all the kids were singing in VBS last year that goes, Billions of dead things buried in rock layers laid down by water all over the earth. You remember the water part. I think that just perhaps that is case. So what am I saying to you? What, what does this geology tell us about theology? God judged the earth. He judged the earth with water. He flooded the earth. The biblical narrative is true. And what are you going to do about it? Knowing that we're a nation that very, 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 very much resembles the same kind of culture that Noah lived in. And no, we're not marching towards a worldwide flood. I, I promise you, I guarantee you upon the authority of God's word himself that the earth is not going to flood in its entirety again. But I absolutely believe that until we march until the end of this age, that nations and people and groups of people that champion and celebrate abomination will experience the judgment of God. How are we to traverse it? Firstly, I would say, make sure you're on that ark. Make sure you know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. If you don't know how to do that, if you have questions about that, speak to me at the end of this service or just receive by faith right now the free gift of grace. Jesus says, come unto me. Will you be obedient to that call is the great question. Look to verse 6 as we move on. It says, Noah was 600 years old when the floodwaters were on the earth. So Noah, with his sons, his wife, and his sons' wives, went into the ark because of the waters of the flood, of clean animals, of animals that are unclean, of birds, and of everything that creeps on the earth. Two by two they went into the ark to Noah, male and female, as God had commanded Noah. 
And it came to pass after seven days that the waters of the flood were on the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep were broken up and the windows of heaven were opened. Now, let me just pause real quick. I'm not done reading yet. But just remember this. This is a great thing to remember in your hair-covered computers and for some of you not so hair-covered, but that's all right. We still love you. Just remember that those who deny the scripture will say things like, well, maybe the earth was created and some kind of catastrophe on the earth happened between 15 and 185 million years. And I remember as a young Christian thinking to, me, thinking to myself like, boy, that's quite the gap. <laughs> I mean, you're talking all these millions of years and you can't even, and yet, and yet the scriptures pinpoint it to the day, to the day. And yet those who I would say are foolish, but they, they so hard don't want the scriptures to be true because it would mean they need to forsake their sin. They try to come up with these bogus things. And I'm thinking like, man, I know I'm not the sharpest tool in the shed, but don't insult my intelligence. You give me these options of God's words, bringing it down to the day. And you're giving me an option between 15 and 85 million years. What kind of goofball do you think I am? Listen. Trust the word of God. It gives it to the detail down to the day. Look to verse 12. And it says, And the rain was on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. On the very same day, Noah and his, Noah and his, Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife, and the three wives of his sons with him, entered the ark. They and every beast after its kind, all cattle after their kind, every creeping thing that creeps on the earth after its kind, and every bird after its kind, every bird of every sort. And they went into the ark to Noah two by two of all flesh in which is the breath of life. So those that entered male and female of all flesh went in as God commanded him and the Lord shut him in. Second thing we would have this morning, trust in the divine protection. Let's take a brief inventory of what God's involvement in this was, of this whole protection plan, this divine plan of protection that God had for Noah and his family. We know that God told Noah what to build. He not only told him what to build, he told him how to build it. God gave him the exact dimensions of what the project was to be. And he even told Noah what kinds of materials to use. And let me see how good you've been reading your Bibles. What kind of wood was the ark made out of? Somebody shout it out. Gopher wood, good job. Yes, gopher wood. Even the exact type of materials. God brought all the animals onto the ark two by two. It was not as if Noah was putting on his cowboy hat and his Wrangler jeans and his cowboy boots and cinching up the saddle on his horse and saying to Shem, Ham, and Japheth, all right, boys, time to go wrangle us some tigers. That was not what happened. It was peaceful as God commanded two by two, male and female, step in step onto the ark, onto this divine plan of protection. It's exactly what happened. This is exactly, yes, it's a miracle. Yes, it's a working of God. This is exactly what the word of God gives us. And I just have to imagine, I don't know if it was when that animals came out, the, the tiger's the, the large, sometimes more dangerous animals is, that are wild and rambunctious. I don't know if it was then as knowing his family witnessed animals two by two going into the ark. I don't, I don't know if it was when they got into the ark and God shut the door and the rain that, came, that had never been on the earth came on the earth. I don't know when it was, but at some point, I'll bet you that knowing his family looked at each other and said something along the lines of, God is doing this. 
God is protecting us. This is God's plan. If it were not for God's miraculous hand of power, we would not be here. And I just wonder how their trust in God's plan of protection increased throughout that experience. Now, how does this translate for you and I here? And I would say probably not if, but when God judges America. What should our marching orders from Noah be as we see in the biblical story? I think we should just understand that God is doing it. We should just expect it. When you see forms of judgment come upon this land, we say, thank you, Jesus, for having been as patient as you are. This is long overdue. We understand that this is a working that you're doing. And, and even in the midst of that, let your faith in God grow. Understand that there is some, there's a plan of protection that he has for his people. You say, Pastor, will all Christians be spared from whatever form of judgment God brings to America? To which I would say... I can't give you any particular promise because I don't see that in Scripture. But what I do see is a pattern. And the pattern that I'm getting an example from, just as a frame of reference, you consider, for example, Lot and his family who were warned of the destruction in Sodom and Gomorrah and were instructed to leave before the destruction came. You think of Rahab and her family who trusted God and were spared from the slaughter that happened at Jericho. You think of the death angel that passed over all of the Israelites' home who had the blood of the lamb on their doorpost. You see a pattern of God's people being protected through these kinds of things. What I would say is let your trust in his perfect plan be certain and solid. No matter how much fright, no matter how much chaos is in the culture, as a result of these means through which God is likely going to judge America, let your heart not be troubled. Say amen. Have faith in him, have trust in him, trust in the protection that we see as a pattern and that he is able to provide even perfectly. And oh, by the way, just as a bonus here, you get this one free of charge. Determine in your heart, even today, church, to endure hardship as Noah did. It took approximately 100 years to build that ark. And you don't think that the people were jeering and mocking and ridiculing Noah and his wife and their family's way of life. When people in this culture, in this world, mock and ridicule your way of life for the spiritual ark that you're building for your family and for that of your children, just take it on the pat of the back and keep on moving. Let them mock, let them jeer, endure it as Noah did. It's undoubtedly going to be the case that if the culture in our world today is not upset with you, mocking you, think that you're crazy, you're probably doing much in alignment with them. And I would say that is the wrong path. Have obedience to his divine plan. Trust in his divine protection. Look to verse 17 as we come into the last one this, this morning. Verse 17. It says, now the flood was on the earth 40 days. The water increased and lifted up the ark and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and greatly increased on the earth. The ark moved about on the surface of the waters. And the waters prevailed exceedingly on the earth. And all the high hills under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed 15 cubits upward. And the mountains were covered. This would be approximately 22 feet that the highest mountaintops at that time were covered over by water. Verse 21. And all flesh died that moved on the earth birds and cattle and beasts and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth and every man 
all in whose nostrils was the breath of the spirit of life, all that was on the dry land died. So he destroyed all living things which were on the face of the ground, both man and cattle, creeping thing and bird of the air. They were destroyed from the earth. Only Noah and those who were with him in the ark remained alive. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. Thirdly, this morning, confidence in the divine preservation. You say, well, Pastor Ben, isn't this very similar to the first, the second one we just went through that we just got done going through of divine protection, that God is able and that there's a pattern of God providing for his people, even in the midst of judgment, particularly judgment seasons for nations and people, that God's people are protected. Isn't there a pattern for that? Yes. Isn't that the same as preservation? No. Protection describes something in the midst of judgment. Preservation references God bringing you completely to the other side. So paint the picture in your mind as the flood as we will come into in future weeks. The flood is over. The ark has landed on Mount Ararat. The door is open and Noah and his family go out. Again, I don't know when it was, but I just have to wonder at some point whether it was when they felt the ark rest upon ground, whether it was when the door opened, whether it was when the waters really began to recede from the earth and there was more room to move about. At some point, I have to imagine they thought to themselves, God has preserved us completely through this. And this is what I can say with utter confidence, whether our lives were to be harmed or given hardships as a result of whatever kind of judgment God brings to this nation, whether we're protected perfectly in time or not, what I can say is that if you're on the ark of Christ, you are going to be preserved blameless before the throne of God if you are indeed through Christ. I don't care what kind of bomb, I don't care what kind of catastrophe environment, I don't care what kind of pestilence, if you're in Christ... You will be preserved by his divine plan of preservation to the very end. And this ought to give us confidence. It's no surprise how this translates over to us. It says in Psalm 25 verse 3, Indeed, let no one who waits on you be ashamed. It says the same thing in the New Testament, Romans 10, 11, For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. You can have, if you're in Christ, if you are a Christian, you can have utter peace and perfect confidence in God's divine plan of preservation to bring you through no matter what kind of judgment he pours about on this nation. It doesn't matter what kind. It doesn't matter how severe. It doesn't matter how much fear it strikes in the heart of anybody else. He has the divine power to bring you through in perfect preservation. So, hypothetical circumstance. Tomorrow is Monday morning. You wake up. You do whatever it is you do in the morning. You see what kind of news, car radio, Facebook, newspaper, television, however you're getting news. And it's all over the place that China has invaded America. And let's say it's the case. They've invaded America. They're running around. They're shooting people with AK-47s. Let's say that happens. What is the response of the Christian? First thing I'd probably say is you should take out as much stock as you can in the Chinese restaurant Panda Express because that's, that's going to be increasing big time. They're, they're, they're going to get hungry running around shooting all of us, and they're not going to want our greasy American food that clogs the arteries. They're going to want some wonton soup. So take out some stock in Panda Express. That's what I would say. But, but this, and I'm being funny here, but what is the response of the Christian? Praise God that it's been this long that he has relented. He is, he, he is patient. He is long-suffering. 
to endure this long with the nation and land that we have lived in. Understand that you must be in Christ. If you're not in Christ, perhaps even some of you will be alive on the earth. When judgment does come to America, and you're going to remember this preacher, you're going to remember back to this very moment, and you're, you're going to put off the gospel for so long, but in that moment, you're going to get yourself on the ark. You're going to commit your life to Christ. You're, you're going to know where perfect, sovereign protection comes from, which is in the name of His Son. And you'll receive by faith this free gift of grace that He paid for in His own life's blood, and you'll become a Christian. But if you're a Christian, thing one is already done. Then I would say, trust God in this process. For whatever comes, whatever may come, however frightening, however terrifying, know that there is a pattern in Scripture for God to preserve His people. And even if that is not the case for you, know that He has the perfect power to preserve you to the very end, even if it meant your physical earthly life was made difficult or even ended as a result of whatever this judgment may be. Let it so be. I trust my Lord as a good shepherd. I trust Him fully. I trust Him faithfully. I, I don't... I, Nobody wants to endure judgment or hardship of any kind, but I trust full well that whatever judgment does come, that a loving, faithful shepherd whose sense of justice is right and perfect and holy is orchestrating every move. And I trust him fully, church. If you do too, say amen. And I would say, understand, have, let your confidence build to say, yes, this is terrible. Yes, it's going to cause people to wig out all over the place and everybody's terrified. I have perfect confidence no matter what may come. God is going to present me faultless before the throne of God because his righteousness is covering me. This, dear friends, is the instruction we see from the person of Noah and God's involvement in his life. Worshippers, if you would come, as the rest of you would stand with me. And I want to simply close by, again, bolstering your confidence, strengthen your confidence. Did you know, church, that more than 200 non-Christian cultures in the world also believe some form of the narrative of the flood. Did you know that? Listen to this. Of those 200 non-Christian cultures that have some kind of narrative in their history, 88% of them describe a favored family. 70% attribute survival to a boat or an ark. 95% say that the sole cause of the catastrophe was a flood. 66% say that the disaster is due to man's wickedness. 67% record that animals were also saved. 57% describe that the survivors end up on a mountain. And many of those have an account that specifically mentions bird, birds being sent out, a rainbow, and eight persons being saved. Now, what I would just like to submit to you is that what other cultures are seeing fuzzily in a fuzzy manner, you and I have the perfect story of. We have the perfect instruction of. We don't see this story in a fuzzy manner. We see it perfectly. We see it clearly. And that's worth praising God for. To thank him for his mercy and for his grace to give us the Bible, to give us his word that gives us these perfect instructions. Finally, this morning, uh, guys, go back if you could to that last slide I had with that question, if you don't mind. A question I want to beckon you all with. And the question is simply this.
in what, do we have that slide guys? In what practical way or ways do I need to follow in Noah's footsteps? What areas of life do you see Noah being incredibly obedient and faithful in? A man who him and his family, a man described as perfect in his generations. How, how do we more closely mimic this man who endured through and endured through rightly? God pouring out the greatest judgment that this earth has yet to, has yet to see. So would you bow your heads for just a moment before we sing together. Father in heaven, we pray now as, as we have this very focused and intentional and pointed time of invitation to say, Lord, what ways would your Holy Spirit convict our hearts that we might change something about our lives this week? That we might more properly reflect a child of yours that is solid in these areas that we see that Noah was just really solid in. So that when judgment comes upon this nation, that we might stand in perfect assurance of your grace, perfect assurance of your judgments, and a perfect confidence to know that you will protect us in your perfect timing and you will, for those that belong to you, you will see us through. Even if death from this judgment were to take us, you will see us through in eternity. Father, we take just a moment now to, to quiet our hearts. For your Holy Spirit to do a work in convicting our hearts even right now as we take a moment to be silent. Father, I trust that your Holy Spirit is doing a work that no man can do in preserving your church and shining a light into all truth for your church. such that as many would become frightful in coming judgment of this nation, but that we, from seeing your perfect word, would march through with our head held high, not in pride, but in a perfect confidence of the perfect Savior, with a perfect assurance that no matter what happens, we're safe and protected, that we traverse through those seasons entirely different than those who have no hope. Father, let it be the case for this church. I pray in Jesus' mighty name.